Hello, and welcome back to the How Might We Sessions podcast. My name is Patrick Scala, your host as always. Now, on today's episode, I have Graham Hitchin. Graham is the Director of Policy and a Professor of Practice at Loughborough University. He's the Director of the Policy Unit there. He's also Head of Strategy, Policy, Creative Industries and Industrial Strategy Programs at UK Research and Innovation. Graham provides strategic management advice on the development of major programs for cities, cultural organisations, universities and government agencies. Graham has a deep knowledge of the creative industries design and innovation in London as well as internationally. He was design and innovation project director for the London Development Agency and was a founding director of Creative London which amongst other things was responsible for establishing Film London and the London Design Festival. He was also a director of corporate policy at the Arts Council England from 1996 to 2000. So as you can tell from that, someone with incredible depth of knowledge and experience of working with and for the creative and cultural industries in London. So we go into a lot of his experience and we talk specifically about research and development and how that area of the economy sits within the creative and cultural industries so a really deep insightful listen i hope you enjoy this episode this is the how might we sessions with graham hitchin graham thank you for coming on that's all right lovely to see you it's been a long time uh, I can't remember. Yeah. I, think, I think it was last summer. We maybe. bumped into each other. We bumped into each other outside uh, here East at one stage, and um, yeah, we did. Yeah, as, as is always the case with those things, we probably got more done in that sort of five minutes interaction, probably while it was you know avoiding the rain, than we might have done in a formal meeting. In that it was a really good catch up. I can't remember when it was. Just after Christmas, something yeah, I think like that's that. Right? I yeah. Know. Well, I think that's uh, well, that's a perfect lead into this, isn't it? If we're getting more value out of those kind of conversations <laughs> than the multitude of other meetings we get placed in then it's suitable that we're here yeah i mean they're all important all oh, of yeah. those you know formal in, in informal but that's why i like the sound of this it was just it's quite good it's over a chat that you sort of think differently um think a bit laterally maybe oh, yeah completely. um so let's see let's see how it goes see how we get on so for anyone who doesn't know yourself um your experience is is I think really notable and there's a lot of depth in, in your experience. I mean, maybe not to go for a biography because I think no, no. the whole episode could be a biography episode, but for anyone who doesn't know yourself, how would you explain what it is you do okay. and what your interests are? Yeah, I'll, I'll do much different things. So, um, well, at the moment I'm doing two, two quite different jobs, but the link between the two of them is probably quite uh, instructive. So uh, at Loughborough, Loughborough University, London, I'm, um, I do two things actually at Loughborough University in London. So I'm part of the Creative Research and Innovation Centre that I'm setting up with Andrew Chitty, which I'm sure we'll say a bit about. And I'm also director of the policy unit for the university, not just in London, but in East Midlands as well. But my second job is that I work for Innovate UK. So I'm part of the Creative Industries Challenge team at Innovate UK. I've been leading the uh, evaluation and strategy development so evaluation of um, the Creative Industries Clusters Programme and the Audience the Future Programme, which is a programme focused on immersive technology in the creative industries. And I've been working with the Innovate UK team on thinking about future strategy and future programmes. So that's, I mean, that's not a potted history of me, but hmm. I suppose my, my background is I've got a mixture of, I've undertaken a mixture of different roles across that sort of creative industries strategy and policy space so working closely with government and government agencies in particular innovate uk the arts and humanities research council the engineering and physical sciences research council digital catapult those sorts of you know governmental agencies but at the same time i've done quite a lot of work mainly in london with universities and with other partners including actually as as you know patrick a, a bit of history in and around um hackney wick fish island in that i did a piece of work ages and ages ago with what was then London Thames Gateway Development Corporation. I came across some photos recently, actually, which were, which I shared with colleagues at Loughborough London. Of um, I did a project here in 2007, and I came down and take, took a whole load of photos of the area. Right. 
Um, a lot of the graffiti hasn't changed, or at least the, the, the images haven't changed. The, the walls have changed, you know, they've moved and changed different places. But um, yeah, it's a different place now from how it was in 2007. Yeah, which isn't that long really in the life cycle of an area, but that speaks to the, how quick the, the change and regeneration has been here since the Olympics. No, you're absolutely right. And certainly in terms of my career or a career for an old geezer like me, you know, 2007 is you know, just yesterday, it wasn't long ago at all. Um, but you're, you know, you're right. I mean, and, and I mean, I, you know, um, I was a consultant in 2007 and before that I'd been working for the London Development Agency and done a whole series of other things in arts and cultural and creative industries policy dating back to working with uh, the DCMS back in, two th uh, no, 1998 in fact. This would be the original DCMS now, not... Well, yeah, no, it was change. DCMS. So when the creative industries, when the, the term creative industries was first invented in 1998, I was, I was working with the DCMS at the time. So... So, yeah, so in that sense, you know, a lot had changed between 1998 and 2007. And by the time I was doing work uh, in and around Hackney Wick uh, in 2007, creative industries was established as a term. But there was um, what wasn't, what hadn't been established by any stretch at all was that East London might become a destination for the creative industries. You know, there's a sense of this, this sort of... Um, I mean, cultural, yes, because it wasn't a cultural backwater. There was definitely a cultural activity here, that was for sure. You know, the very strong creative community. But, but I think in 2007, the, you know, what we were talking about was whether or not this area might or might not attract creative businesses from Soho. Is that feasible? Would they come east? You know, if they might come east to Old Street, maybe, but goodness me, they wouldn't come as far as... Stratford and Hackney Wig, would they? And that was the question. So, you know, the, the piece of work I remember being tasked to do in 2007 was to look at the scope for helping to develop a creative cluster. You know, was the scope to develop that? So, um, yeah, so anyway, that's, that's me. That was the question you asked me. That's a yeah. bit about me and where I've come from, what I'm doing. And that leads on to our question and, and the whole nature of this podcast being around trying to problem solve around how might we questions. And we decided to go with the how might we of how might we use creative and cultural industries research and apply it to support creative clusters, probably in parentheses in Hackneywick and Fish Island. But I guess anyone who's listening who isn't in this area could probably apply the, uh, the intellectual um, framework that we're going to develop or the ideas that we'll put forward here and it's interesting when you talk about would they come east and you know if we think about it even further back in the sort of 19th or the 20th century around here the edge lands or the post-industrial phase um when we think about the issue of culture and creative industries uh, um, and the research element of it and how that feeds into creative clusters a lot of information is out there around how the creative and cultural industries maybe don't participate as highly in research and development. And I think it's, it's kind of well-versed that, you know, the STEM subjects are, of course, more heavily weighted in terms of the tax relief schemes that are available nationally. Are, are you, in your experience, where do you see the issues with creative and cultural industries in terms of their desire or their access to research? And then, I guess, as a subset of that, how does... How does that research, as you see it, then apply to creating innovative products or services or modalities to support a, a creative cluster? Well, I think, I mean, in a way, it's interesting to start somewhere else. So I always think that um, you take the life sciences, take the pharmaceutical industry, you know, they've got a very well-established model for how to do research and how that research ends up in um, commercialisable products. And they, they, not only have they got a well-established process from people in white coats in labs doing research all the way through to pills finding their way into um, pharmacies and making lots of money for the pharmaceutical industries, but they've, they've got well-established algorithms. You know, they will know exactly if you invest X in a lab, uh, they, they, can, they can calculate based on decades of experience and also based on just I suppose well-managed labs and well-managed processes they could work out how much what sort of return on investment they're going to get they also will know how long it takes because typically they will say between initially doing some research on 
uh, with with some cells to explore the feasibility of some uh, what at that stage might be relatively obscure or small medical challenge, they will be able to tell you how quickly it is that that that, that might move to a point where they, as a lab, GlaxoSmithKline or whatever or their partnership with Imperial University, you know, Imperial College or whatever university it might be. They can work out they can work out how long it will take them to make money on that. So that that well established model is what sits behind significant amount of private sector investment and and major public sector investment into cancer research, into medical research. It's not only um frankly that you know cancer, rightly or wrongly, you know, is considered more important than the arts, that isn't the debate I'm trying to have here. That The debate is about saying that, um, that, or rather the assertion is that we know, we know what impact that can have. We can measure what impact that can have. And therefore we can track it all the way through from beginning to end. Now, the fact is we just don't have that in the creative industries. You know, we, A, we don't have a model which says that there's a lab which exists inside a university. And I'll come back to this notion of a lab. But there isn't a model which, which is about transfer of technology on knowledge from a highly structured and highly regulated and very, very highly educated context, i.e. an academic institution with people that have completed PhDs, multiple degrees that are working in certain conditions and being able to translate that through. It's not only that we don't have labs of that kind, it's also that what we don't have is an established system that can track the, the moment that something begins through to... Uh, the moment that it generates a return on investment. There will be examples, and people always use the example of something like, um, uh, I forgot what it's called, the, the, the um, war horse. War horse. So, um, and people will give examples as they, they did. It was a much quoted example of where the time it took between the National Theatre putting on the first production of War Horse and when they started to see massive returns on investment as a result of War Horse going to... Um, not only West End Theatre, but then to uh, New York, and I think internationally around the world, and translating into a film. And you can track, you can track the investment, the return on investment there. But the question then comes: is which bit of that is the R and D? Which bits the which bits the the research? What what bit of that is the equivalent of being in a lab? Is a National Theatre studio a lab? Well, not really doesn't mean to say there isn't some R&D going into that, but where did the idea come from? And there's a need to track it even further back. But of course, even if we did track it back, you'll find it begs the question, where does a university sit within that? Right. And whereas I think there's a, it, it's a, it's a arguable term, and I'm sure it doesn't apply in the life sciences, but I'm going to assert in any case that there's a linear model in pharmaceuticals. There's a linear model in automotive that you know that might be about the uh, texture of certain materials that mean that you know if you test those and develop those in a lab so that they you you just check the density the aerodynamics of particular uh, materials about their their ability to um, crush on impact or whatever all the way through to the sales of the latest electric vehicle um, that's a pretty linear model in the in the creative sector it's just not that actually, sure. uh, and I, but I would say that universities are part of that much, much more complex ecosystem where there are a set of interactions at different stages. In the case of Warhorse, it is possible to say, and, and it might be possible to track other um, bit, bits of theatre that have gone from, let's say, the National Theatre, which might, it may well be the National Theatre has a relatively well established model that it can track how long it takes, how much money. Uh, is return on investment, although you'd be a, a foolish investor <laughs> to think you could in invest on that. But actually other bits of the cultural sector, you, you, you just can't do that and you wouldn't do that. Games, it might be weeks. It might be weeks between, you know, a great idea um, being developed by a games developer and it, and it actually, through mobile technology, which is relatively fast, you know, things move on to mobile technology right. faster than onto other major platforms. Um, it, it, you know, that may be that return on investment is much, much faster. But the point I'm trying to make is there isn't a model. There isn't an established model. And I think that um, that's why it's really difficult, I think, to A, to make the case. It's really difficult to make the case to, to government. 
but also conversely, as it were, not not letting government off the hook completely. <laughs> but because we don't have those tried and tested models, it's it's quite difficult for government to be able to say, "Great, we've seen you know we've seen the impact that can make. We'll put investment in." Um, because we know there's going to be a return on investment. It might take 20, 30 years, but we'll know there's going to be a return on investment. And and we know how it works. We'll put the investment in here, which is what government does with life sciences. You know, we don't need to put it in the pharmacies because it's this bit at this end yeah. where they need huge investment in labs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to the creative industries, whether it's Warhorse or whatever, of course, Warhorse are actually originated in the form of a book, Michael Morpurgo. So, you know, how far back do you have to go? Where's the Where's the... Where's the origin? Which bit of, of that cycle from the the book through the publishing industry onto stage, through stage into film, which bit of that cycle is the bit that requires public sector investment? Right. Which is the bit of that cycle you would consider to be research? Which of the bit is, is high-risk R&D? Which of the bit is commercialization? Um, so... Yeah, we can look at any any number of examples, I think. But that's that means it's a, just a, a very, very complex and difficult space. I think that sort of upstream impact into the creative and cultural industries, uh, individual firms, for example, that maybe don't have that those institutions in the system which supports them, as you say, whether it's government or academia or others, which have created a model whereby we understand maybe beyond a pure economic return on these things. As you said, Warhorse is a, that's a good example, and there are clear economic returns from putting on a theatrical show. But there's also the intangible social and cultural benefits, which are the maybe the harder things to really, the granular things which ultimately the arts and culture or agents in that system, oftentimes the aesthetic value and the cultural significance are, are much more important to those people yeah. than pure economic return, as, as you say, where STEM might lean more into that. And where you place R&D, uh, individual like creative production or the, the creative product production cycle is inherently research and development, but it's just what you do. It's not a separate team somewhere, as you say, in lab coats, etc. So do you think there's a in terms of the uh, the factors that shape the issue, do you think there's as much a kind of cultural and social factor behind why these things aren't as... Yeah. Old? I mean, there's something quite interesting in that. So, by the way, uh, which I will pick up, just by the way, I mean, I was realised I was talking, there's a risk of sort of saying you can never uh, make the case or, or it's too difficult to make the case. So I've got my own theory and other people have their own theories about how and where there's a gap in that. Um, research and development cycle, and how and where public investment should come in, and so on. But, but I think you're right. One of the, what's interesting, I think, um, one of the criticisms of the whole creative industries development, the initiative that came post '98, um, was I remember Robert Hewison, the cultural commentator, referring to it as a Faustian pact. <laughs> His view was that the moment that people in the cultural and creative sector started to drink the Kool-Aid of creative industries. The moment we started to become, that moment we started to become obsessed with the economic value of something at, at the, to the detriment of that broader aesthetic, cultural, social value and so on. Now, that may well be the case, but I think what's interesting about that is that it comes back to that difficulty of, um, making the case coherently because I think that, you know, what, what case are we trying to make? Um, and, and I think that in not, not enough has been done to demonstrate what I'm going to describe as the industrial value, not the economic value, the industrial value uh, of uh, the creative industries. By industrial, I mean, you know, to look at the um, economic spillovers, if you like. So an economic case would say this is how much comes into the economy. Industrial value would will build that understanding of what types of companies where, um, what is the nature of that R&D activity. We don't, we don't have that understanding. We know how much money is made from different subsectors in the creative industries, but we don't know how. We don't know which bits of that chain make the money, as it were, and where those gaps are. But I think that, so I, I, I absolutely think that's where research can come in. Research plays a really important role in helping us understand that industrial value not at the expense of those other things, the aesthetic, the cultural value, and so on. Um, 
but I think we need to do we need to do all of that. And I and I would say, although there there is a good body of thought that says not enough attention has been made, paid to cultural policy over the last since nineteen ninety eight, and there's been a lot of attention given to economic value. But I would say actually before, you know, we're not actually very good at at, at arguing the cultural value either. Right. You know, what are our measures of success? Um, we talk about self-confidence. We talk about, um, uh, you know, the whole range of transferable yeah, me- skills. Health, different yeah, things, mental creative, health, yeah. problem solving. But uh, equally, you know, there's that sort of but the cultural value per se. And I, I absolutely endorse this, by the way. I, 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 you know, I'm yeah. very, I personally, <laughs> outside of professional life, if you like, I'm, 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 I get upset when I hear people talk about the value of culture according to its instrumental value, what it does in terms of jobs or what it does in terms of mental health or what it does uh, in so- in terms of social impact or educational value or, you know, that one that says kids who do music at school will do better at maths. I think, so what? I mean, you know, actually what's wrong with doing music at school? Because you love music or you do well at music. Why, why, do you, why do we have to measure the value of something according to a whole set of other standards? But, but in saying that, we actually aren't very good, I don't think, at saying, well, what is that cultural value exactly? You know, what is that being good at music that actually somehow makes, makes the world a better place? Mm. Um, and we, we sort of know intuitively what it is. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, that, so there's a whole, that's a, a, perhaps another debate for another time. Yeah. I think it's what we hear as well. I think a lot of people out there who maybe experience this topic through the news cycle or, um, yeah, certainly newspapers, uh, the, the recent change to the, the DCMS categorization and the digital kind of how that, the focus about, you know, Silicon Valley on Thames, all these sort of buzzwords and boilerplates and, and sort of what seemingly become axioms of our time. You know, we need to create a new Silicon Valley in, in London all the time and we've tried and maybe been somewhat successful and not here to speak about that, but even the notion of, and I read the great research about uh, our ideas getting harder to find and uh, Nicholas Bloom, Jones and Webb. And, and they talked about the idea that uh, economic growth as it tracks to research activity as a, as a, as a function and economic growth relating to actually research productivity falling, but the number of researchers increasing and so we, I think in many ways, we see this idea of, well, you know, if we increase our spend on research and development, there'll be all these great economic advantages. And in many ways, I think it sounds like that paradigm's worth questioning and also worth questioning from a context of London or Hackney Wick and a creative cluster. Is that where our comparative advantage lies? And could we do better by creating better parallels between research and certain other creative disciplines or other social practices etc to try and create a, a newer version of this practice in order to you know reinforce some better experiences of what research and development is because i think you, you touched on there the idea of pharmaceuticals and of course you know a government function looking after the health of its population and the negative externalities of pollution of course that relates to that so that's a direct need that we need to fix of course yeah but i think there's also worth noting that you know if we if we solely focus on those things then we'll lose a lot of the really yeah, no. beautiful things that make this place and many well, other places so around me, the United Kingdom so great. As we're talking, I'm reminded of um, something I worked on about 2003, actually. I remember the timing because of um, it was a commission on, uh, Mayor's Commission on the Creative Industries, which was established in 2003 when I was at the London Development Agency. So Ken, Ken was mayor at the time, and we set up a year's programme of discussions, debates, visits, and so on. Had a bunch of the great and the good working with us all, mainly good, actually, in the <laughs> sense they were, we, we quite deliberately pulled a, gr- a group together that were, were quite well-rooted in cultural and creative practice. But, um, and I remember there was a, an essay which was a, a done as a provo- provocation by Kate Oakley, um, some people will know now, professor at Glasgow University, did a lot of work in London. Um, she did an essay called The Street or the Lab, or The Street and the Lab, but it was about R&D. So it took this notion that I mentioned earlier of, of you know, the typical model of um, uh, R&D being driven by or starting from a lab. 
And they asked the question where the lab was in terms of cultural sector. And what we came down on actually was this notion of, yes, the street is a sort of conceptual term of, of, of a, a sort of urban, but it was partly in that case, it was London. It was about urban um, and, and the, 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 the idea of a street as a meeting place, if you like, in the way that a city is a meeting place. But a really interesting aspect of that was the importance of what we called hubs, for which you might we might call clusters, but I'll come back to that. But but the idea of the hub was that that, that in, in London there are there were places which connected different types of practice and very, very often they connected non creative practice. So actually it would be near universities often because what universities brought together was smart people, but it was also smart people with a bit of time on their hands or a bit of flexible time at least, where they could experiment and try new things. And um, in amongst that, if you had, which there often were um, cultural facilities, sometimes it would be a gallery, uh, sometimes it would be a theatre space, a sort of community theatre very often. Uh, often it would be uh, artist studios, you know, so co-working spaces. That what, what, what those places had in common was a sort of network of people who were doing what, not, not, uh, you know, not unhelpfully, not an unhelpful comparison, were doing what a sort of a lab environment might do in that. It was experiments. People were experimenting. People had an environment and were working with an environment where they were coming in and trying out new things. Sometimes they were testing in the way that I was describing before with a lab, you know, obscure medicines or obscure medical challenges, people will often, as we know, cultural and creative people, will test ideas that they've, you know, they've got an idea. Wouldn't it be great if we could fix this? Or wouldn't it be great if we could think about the challenge relating to um, climate change or the challenge relating to massive sort of uh, inequalities in society in different ways. So experiments and ideas that start to test that, they're not trying to fix that problem necessarily, but they, that's part of the canvas. So I think that what's interesting, and going back to the how might we challenge about, mm. about creative and cultural clusters or places, is that I think one of the, what's really important about clusters is that they can be a place where where those ideas and those people come together in an environment which can facilitate experiment. There are a number of conditions that have to be there. I would, I'll give two examples of things that I think shouldn't be there or, or, or aren't, if you like, examples of what I'm describing. One would be a made-up cluster. You know, So you can do it in, you can create a science park on the, the edge of a town that everybody drives to and um, is open Monday, Friday, nine to five, but actually is dead in the evening. Well, you know, I'm not describing a cultural creative version of that sort of science park. So it's got to be somewhere where there's a sort of living space 24 yeah. seven or at least weekend and so on a, a activity. I think the other thing it isn't is you know, highly expensive, manufactured, lots of co-working spaces designed by, with all due respect, developers. You know, I think it ha there has to be an organic element, which is a very mixed community which we're all familiar with in different ways, but, you know, of cafes, bars, places to hang out in the evening, but also, as I've said, facilities in terms of for making, for production. production yeah. So studios, uh, I've said art galleries or, or, or well, they're, they're showcase facilities. So so it's, it's, it's a mixture of all of those things. And I think that, that, that London has got a number of those and I think is very good... Uh, at, at at being the laboratory, not just for creative and cultural talent and ideas and, and products and services, but actually for a whole set of products and services that flow over into other sectors because of that, you know, the, the benefits that come around through not just agglomeration of different activities, but the sort of diversity of the assets that are agglomerated in that space and diversity of ta the talent base that's there as well. Yeah, and I think you, you talked about an agglomeration economy, and I think that's a good framing to, if you think about how innovation, innovation in the creative and cultural realm, but also more broadly in the economic sphere and how it more readily seems to flow through, say, supply chains over competition. And something about creating a agglomeration economy, a rising tide lifting maybe as many boats, not all boats. I always think that expression's a little bit limiting, but... This idea that ideas are non-rivalrous and that benefit of increased activity, and it could be research and development, doesn't have to be, and you know, forcing 
the arts or the creative or the cultural industries and that Faustian bargain, as you mentioned, to over um, overweight commodification of their product in order to sustain and, and exist in an agglomeration economy, of course, isn't what we want. But I think the positive some outcome for an area through more firms investing in activity which allows them to be more resilient or even looking at the nature of I think it's a definitional thing in many ways even when I look at sort of R&D tax relief in the UK and it, all of the wording is around science and technology I think in other parts of Europe they actually have culture and creativity in the uh, definitional yeah. terms for it and I think these kind of subtle jabs or, or like reductionism in those and the validity of those uh, disciplines in that structure means that when you come to these creating these ecosystems we mentioned on a couple of podcasts back so i'll mention them again but petty plea the, the the children's garments that grow a patented technology that they've created a, a young man out of rca that's a very different uh, paradigm than a, a fine artist perhaps who isn't you know how do you the ip of your creative work etc it's very different in those spaces but how do you see this? Where do you see in terms of, as, as you say, of those overdeveloped places or developer first places? How do you see those as sort of chipping away around those, yeah. you know, the, the thimos, the, the self-worth of those creative and cultural agents? Yeah, before I do that, I mean, I was going to say that um, I'm not, I'm not a, um, I'm not like a Canute figure that somehow um, wants to protect or, you know, the point is that they're dynamic spaces, I suppose I'm describing. And I think that... Sure. Uh, dynamic spaces are ones that aren't over-precious and over-protected. They are places where there's actually some tension and some struggle, uh, not always in a good way. And I, uh, what I mean by that is that I, I'm not saying that um, those battles are good things or that inequality or you know is, is, is good. I don't think it is at all. However, the, I do think that sometimes it's, um, it's out of struggle that the ideas come it's out of that that sort of exchange of practice and different practices different processes that new ideas emerge um so i think um i mean it's interesting so i'll give it I'll give an example to you. as you were talking then i was thinking i'm just working on a paper earlier today mm. which suggests on a consistent basis over the last let's say five or six years, I can't remember, it's longer than that, but on a consistent basis, actually, you can tra I'll track it back to 2018, um, or, or the industrial strategy in 2017, on a consistent basis, pretty much every single policy paper or white paper published by government between 2017 and now, and if you think about the shit show we've yeah, had in terms Jesus. of government and people in charge and the, and the, and the, and the uh, volatility of that policy environment, every single paper has referenced the creative industries and said how important the creative industries is. So on the face of it, you think, I mean, this government gets the creative industries. There is commitment to invest. It may not be as much money as we want. It may not be as sympathetic as we want around things like R&D tax credits and so on. But actually, there has been a significant amount of investment. There is a very clear acknowledgement of the creative industries. There have been a series of statements, not just from the culture ministers and the creative industries ministers, but from chancellors, from prime ministers, about the importance of the creative industries. So we're actually in a very, very good place. But, and there's a big but coming, that if you then sort of, as it were, translate that into what does that mean for, say, creative clusters, well, that's only as good as that, that economic policy, if you like, an innovation policy, can uh, in a locality, that can only ever be as good as the planning policy, for example, of, dare I say, local authorities, which have been massively underfunded and massively cut and disempowered over the, that same period. Also, what has been damaged during that period is, is the quality of education. Investment in cultural education or the, the recognition and value of GCSEs and even non qualification-based teaching, you know, private schools that put invest lo loads of money into music tuition, as I said before, for example, so that every kid gets to learn an instrument, whether or not they're doing a GCSE in that particular topic. That, that area has been massively underfunded. So, you know, you translate that into a place, the quality of place, then you start to say, well, okay, it, it, there may be some 
uh, interventions in place or some funding that's available for some businesses that is going to create a, or, or does help to create a, a good economic environment for creative ideas and creative people and create creative businesses to flourish. But actually many of the other conditions that would make for a really strong and vibrant creative cluster haven't been in place or have been actively damaged. And it comes back to, I suppose, my earlier point. And, you know, unless we can say with real authority, I think, ideally, you know, backed up by hmm. good quality research, that these are the elements that constitute a vibrant and strong creative cluster. And this is the return on investment and not just economic investment or, or economic return rather, but cultural and social return that we can get. Then, then it's going to be very difficult to make. I mean, I think we can all see it. We can all observe it. But again, we've got to we've got to be better at making those arguments. Do we have to solve the economic perspective though before we can look to those other two? Do you think it's disingenuous to not? No, I think we've gone a long way to solve not solving. I think we've gone a long, long way since 1998. I think, in many senses, the economic, you know, the fact that the the fact I've been able to say that prime ministers, chancellors, sure, yeah, sure, you know, have all been able to, you know, the the, the level of commitment to creative industries suggests to a certain extent if not entirely, that we have solved that. You know, there is a recognition at government level of the importance of the creative industries, not as, you know, not investing as much as we'd like to see and, you know, blah, blah, blah. However, I do think in other areas um, that case hasn't been made. So so actually, you know, I suppose the point I would make is I think we've done pretty well on that economic case, actually. I think we do need to understand better the industrial model of creative industries so we can understand how and where to invest at what stage in the cycle of development of the you know, music or what stage in the development of that theatre piece or what stage in the cycle in the development of that um, piece of written content that might find its way into the, through, you know, through ideas, through, you know, through a short story, whatever it might be, and how that might see the light of day or make money or whatever. Um, but I think we've also got to look at other measures that, that, that enable us to better capture and articulate the the importance of the creative and cultural sector to um, to you know a, a better society. I'll give an example. So Kate Rayworth is somebody who's done a lot of work on donut economics. Donut economics, this idea of of, of you know my my take on it is a sort of you know a purely economic based based approach to the economy. Um, which is only where we only measure GDP, you end up with a hollowed out economy that, that's got no life or soul. So, you know, she started to develop a set of metrics associated with uh, a, a, a better functioning society, which isn't just about the economy, but has a set of other things in place. Where are we as a creative and cultural sector in in, in having a dialogue with Kate and her colleagues about in showing that a richer, more sustainable economy has culture and creative industries right at the heart of it as well, and I think we've got to look at how we can how we can build those arguments. But again, not just use rhetoric to do it, but right. actually draw on good quality research and good quality evidence that enables us to demonstrate how investing here or under, or supporting these types of these activities can lead to a society which has these richer, more sustainable, more um, equitable, and coherent sort of program of uh, of support. I think it's a, re a really reasonable point. And I mean, UCL have their um, prosperity team and they have, a, again, a similar new set of measures beyond GDP to try to get towards, uh, I think, prosperity is the term they use to, in terms of where what we should be tracking over growth. Um, but I think in that, in, in to, to pick on the idea of what people think and, and feel, to double click on that in terms of maybe young people who are interested in these industries, practitioners in these industries, um, I read before we came on a, a 2020 report from the DCMS that found 55% um, of creative businesses had undertaken some form of R&D in the past three years, but only 14% of them would have been eligible for tax relief. And regardless of R&D efforts by creative firms, this hasn't translated to higher probability of external capital um, to support their growth. So that, to me, there feels fundamentally uh, an asymmetry between the sort of use value of creative and cultural industries R&D and its exchange value in a in a free market and to me that feels compounded by these maybe the top-down idea of how government might talk good on supporting these industries but fundamentally if there isn't that the, the buyer of last resort or the the foundational support that a government 
provides then the capital markets in terms of allocating capital look at these highly risk orientated industries like you said gaming fashion music the, the, the customer base is very transitory it's hard to lock in ARR for <laughs> for a music producer for example yeah. but it's much easier for as you say a pharmaceutical well not for you know a technology company or a games company for example and so do you think there's a where do you see that sort of milieu and, and where do you see it in terms of a, dire a direction of travel that would be better yeah. well actually that's quite interesting I, I do know that I do know that research well and I've I've cited it many times in in reports and it is a really interesting so I'm going to say two things which I hope aren't completely paradoxical but on the one hand that research which says 55% of companies say they conduct research but then sorry con conduct R&D but then uh, that's not recognised in terms of formal tax breaks um, and I think we'd find if you looked at other sectors there'd probably be the issue would be closer if you've got 55% saying they do R&D then you'd expect to see 55% of them applying for funding or, or, or being recognised by government as such and part of the problem in the creative industries I think it, this is the bit the paradoxical bit it's actually we say we're doing R&D but we don't actually have a definition of it we don't know what it means and it comes back to this point of of how and where does it make a difference so so I think that uh, I, I think the government could do more government actually has recently changed the rules on R&D tax credits that's going to make it, has, it yeah. even more difficult yeah. for small companies it's the the rules that it applies until recently uh, to but broadly speaking, I had two models, one for big companies and one for small companies. And it said we're going to have a single system going forward and it's the one that they used for big companies, which is just going to make it really difficult and very, very expensive indeed for smaller companies that don't have big finance or accountancy departments or very expensively paid accountancy firms to help them make the case that it's going to make it more difficult for creative businesses. So that number will go down from 14% even lower, I'm sure. And increase their risk profile because they'll go then to banks and the, the weighted of average cost of capital for a creative firm will be through the roof, especially now as interest rates have gone up. So it's all compounding to be even, the timing couldn't be worse as well. Yeah, so I think so. It so I think that is very problematic and, and that is something government should take on board. And I, So it is one of multiple examples. It is one of multiple examples of I think it's possible to point to government policy and to say, you say you get it, uh, and you are publishing these things in your policy documents. However, are you following it through? So there have been there there are multiple decisions, and that is one. I think the R and D tax credits system is one which is need, in need of some reform. As it happens, I'm that there's a body of thinking published by the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre which says we need to change the definition. I don't think we need to change definitions. Uh, I think what we need to do is apply the definitions that exist in a more um, sounds more generous way but a, but a more equitable way in a sense that the, the definitions that exist actually could apply just as easily to theater um, games film TV as they do to electronics and uh, automotive and the other sectors that get massive tax relief it's just that what tends to happen is as I've just said that the companies don't have enough money there isn't the level of sympathy or support coming from officials and there aren't there aren't because they often draw on case studies. There aren't there aren't case studies. You know there isn't case law that the accountants or the solicitors can make when they go to court to say this 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 project is worthy of of R and D tax credits. So so there that's one of as I say one of a number of examples of where the government could be doing better. Um, but I think broadly speaking, you know certainly with my UKRI hat, uh, my, my Innovate UK hat, we've got pretty good dialogue. Okay, uh, with DCMS. DCMS have got a pretty good relationship. It's still a small department, um, but it's got a better relationship with what is now the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology and the, the Treasury than it did, say, 10 years ago. So so there is progress. There is progress along those fronts. I just think we need to um, progress some other fronts too. So I think if we look at, we've outlined a lot of problems and solutions, I think. And I think one of the, maybe the simpler ones, it's interesting you talk about definition. I think maybe that's, I don't think there's an issue with the definition. I think it's 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 apt. People will always have issue with definition, I think, right? No matter how well constructed it is, if we're talking to 
creative practitioner. Yeah, and, and between us, we'll argue about what the right definition is. Exactly. So, you know, but yeah. definitions are important, but I don't think it's worth us getting into the weeds on that one, right? No. I think it's it's reasonably fit for purpose. But do you think that in terms of the targeting of you know education and support about the benefits of R&D and also to double click it slightly into what you said earlier about how how we better define what you're doing in your creative production process as R&D. So they might be conducting R&D, quote unquote, all the time. But as you said, it's on the street. It's in a different way. It's more participatory. It's fun. Yeah, I think there could be some things. So, I mean, I'll give one, one practical example would be the Arts Council. I think if there's a tendency in the arts world to use the word R&D very, very liberally as a way of saying, oh, we're R&D for, or, you know, um, subsidised theatre is R&D for commercial theatre. Actually, it's just not. Certainly, right. and part of the reason why you'd say it's not is actually there are there are a very large number of uh, impresarios who put lots of their own personal money into plays that flop, you know, and that's that, that there there is R and D in there. But I think so. I think someone like the Arts Council, for example, could do a piece of work that says, um, and they talked about doing it some years ago, and it ended up being something else. But they could do a piece of work that's about trying to help define R and D. Certainly, I know some companies. I know a couple of dance companies that, that, that are very clear about which bit of their activities are R&D and which bit isn't. Which bit? It used to be the case when they were all very well-funded, studio theatres. So many big theatres had a studio theatre and they called it the studio theatre as a distinct from the main stage. Now what tends to happen is they just get different names and they have smaller productions and bigger productions and so on. But it used to be the case, I'm thinking of someone like the Bristol Old Vic or a number of others, that they, they quite deliberately called something the studio theatre and they quite deliberately would put on uh, early, not not rehearsals, but early ideas that were, were in development there. And now if you if you built up something around that and built up a funding system to support that, that, that distinguished between early stage R&D and later stage commercial or near commercial or whatever terminology, then that, w that would be helpful, I think, because that would be a way of... of, uh, of Partly for the companies themselves, it would be an investment in R&D and, and, and a very public way, if you're the Arts Council, of saying we use our money to support things that aren't yet ready for commercial development and to be able to justify that. But I, what I had in mind was, was a process of actually com, uh, of communicating to investors, to the non-public funding sector, and, in, and communicating to R&D tax credit specialists and advisors and com, communicating to HMRC and and to um, uh, treasury officials and so on, is that if we were able to say, look, this R&D activity, you know, the, these are the elements of it. These are, these are the components which mean that although it is being staged and there is an audience, it is not yet commercial. Because that's the other thing, bear in mind that most other sectors, if you're selling something and uh, somebody else is paying for it, then that by definition is commercial. You're already... In, in a marketplace, it's transaction, so it's not R&D anymore. Mm. So this notion that sort of subsidised theatre is R&D, you know, you can't, you can't no, get yeah. away with that. Sure. Whereas I think, think you can legitimately say, this is going on a six-week trial because we think there might be some commercial value in it, but we need to test it and we need to test out whether this ticket price is right. And at the end of that six weeks, we will evaluate it and we will have a look at whether that is something that can transfer to West End or whatever. Then you're starting to put a process around something, and I think the value of that is you can communicate that to people who will invest in it, not least policymakers, so government, and as I say, civil servants and others. And if if we can, as a sector, start to, frankly, codify, you know, compartmentalise and codify and talk about the stages and the processes, and I think that will that 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 will be really important in terms of giving confidence to investors that could see the sort of um, better and fairer application of the R&D tax credit system and, and the introduction maybe of other incentives and measures that, that will enable us to invest in that early stage research and development that will lead to, or you know, hopefully will lead to the success in the sector. Yeah, and it's that, if we think about in the, the classic economic framework of a you know, GDP consumption function and consumption reducing as, as interest rates go up, net exports, government expenditure... I think if any, in many ways we're at a time of austerity or entering a period, it seems like there is going to be more cuts. Certain um, elements of government expenditure will go into, again, focusing on areas they think will have the most return. But 
to go back to the point you mentioned, risk-taking and experimentation. And at this period, it's the time when I think we're, in, in terms of how I interface supporting the creative and cultural industries, and I'm sure you have since, as you say, since the 90s, the sort of new business models that integrate those new digital technologies and, and, and make arts, culture, creativity more sustainable in, in a evolving and changing climate uh, economically, it, it does help promote arts and culture as a also as a viable career path, as you said, for those young people. Yeah, in a serious sector. And I mean, it, I think it's positioning it as a serious sector. And yeah. it's a valuable yeah. test bed. And if you're talking about repeatability and experimentation, that's that speaks to the world speaks to the world of venture capital uh, uh, and you know external funding, private capital. That idea of you know, as you said, for a period of time, we're going to experiment on new digital form or, or a new way of distributing our product or a new fabric materiality that you know, biomimicry in, in garment technology. This is something that speaks that well, but we need, again, that sort of push from behind to say these industries have uh, a viable way forward in that world. And in order to make it something that, you know, I just I just think that idea of the, the experimentation and the risk taking needs to be supported by something more than what's already out there, in my view. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm sure that's right. And I'm, and sometimes you mentioned venture capital, there will be times when it's absolutely appropriate for venture capital and the same in other sectors. So we've you know mentioned a few times pharmaceuticals. You know, venture capitalists don't invest in venture cap- uh, pharmaceuticals at a very early stage. Public sector puts in a huge amount of fun- uh, investment. Right. You know, public sector has a huge role to play. So this isn't, none of this is intended to be a sort of case against public funding. On the contrary, it's about saying there is a significant case for public funding, but let's look at the different types of public funding there are in research, research and development, um, some through universities, sometimes directly to companies. Sometimes it will be through oh, to big companies. Sometimes it will be quite deliberately to, to, to ecosystems of smaller companies. And that's what a sophisticated um, economic strategy or industrial strategy would do. That's, that's the level of sophistication exists in, again, pharmaceuticals. You can have a look. There will be funding for science parks. There'll be funding for university departments. There'll be funding for... Um, big company labs, there'll be planning permissions given to enable, you know, a whole series of things because there's and there's you know, heaps of investment across a number of different fronts because there's an understanding that all of that contributes to the healthy, functioning, vibrant and economically successful sector. And I think, and actually, you know, you could say, well, we do that. We do that actually in the cultural and creative sector. They're all, there's lots of public funding goes in. It's just, I don't think we, I don't think we know with the same level of confidence that government and venture capitalists and others do for pharmaceuticals. We don't know which bits contribute or, you know, what the value is. And, um, you know, there's a, there would be a case, I'm not going to go down that track of saying, you know, let's, we've got a healthy ecosystem and most of the time it works pretty well. And look at the, you know, we're some of the best in the world, you know, let's not, let's, you know, let's not, uh, angst about it too much. But I think, um, yeah, I think in many senses, our this the strength of creative industries in the UK in 2023, in many senses, is an accidental success. Right, yeah. And it'd be nice to think that we actually had a bit more knowledge and understanding of how we've managed to achieve the success we've had and then look at ways in which we could reinvest back into those elements that have contributed to that success. And I guess recent track records for governments around the world in terms of their industrial strategy is, is patchy at best. So that idea of a a non-playing referee of a government instead of one that puts its thumb on the scale when it thinks it's time to, yeah. you know, accelerate a sector. Or uh, we've seen that now in terms of climate, a lot of subsidy and a lot of tax relief and the Inflation Reduction Act in America and the kind of effects those things have. But I do wonder if we could just quickly expand on that one agent in the system you talked about to explicate universities as an agent in that system and that idea of fostering collaboration and, and knowledge sharing and the fundamental element of what universities do. And certainly for somebody like Hackneywick and Fish Island, which now has many, many universities in it and also a hell of a lot of industry, are there things that you think could be done better to foster a, a more elastic supply of students coming out of these universities working in those industries or during their time in university having a, a more engaged approach with the world that they're currently yeah. studying in? Well, I think universities generally could do much, much more to engage with their local or their community. And I say 
not necessarily local because sometimes it will be sectoral rather than geographically local. But I think much, much more could be done. And I think much more could be done in a way which isn't paying lip service or even um, a sort of corporate social responsibility, although that's, that's a good thing to do too. I think more could be done to in, in terms of talent. So you've mentioned um, uh, students coming out. I'd say look at talent flows into a university. So at Loughborough University in London, we've, although we're a postgraduate only, so it's not straightforward in terms of connecting with schools, but we try and connect with schools, um, not least to, to, to encourage people to go to the university in the East Midlands. But, um, <laughs> but I think then there's talent flowing out. So we do a lot of work with local companies. So I think providing that opportunity for talent flow, it's great for us to be able to say to our students or incoming students, you know, we've got these great partnerships with local employers and you might get a job locally. But it's also great for the local economy, I think, and um, it, it helps drive growth in the economy and, and innovation, fresh talent, new ideas. But it also is really good in terms of community engagement. Yeah, that Collaborate project that Loughborough has, which you know, yeah. I know many firms in many creative industries that have accessed that program and worked with students for a brief time on a direct challenge that impacts their business. And the, the input cost of doing that outside of the university would be way too high for them to explore in a in a precarious situation yeah. so it's an incredible lever for them yeah, to no, access we're, we're really proud of collaborate and shout out to, to ben and ash and colleagues who, who run the collaborate program so that's collaborative projects we run where these are live projects that are brought in that all students are obliged to work with so all students work on a project in some way or another and um collaborative dissertation which is much much more selective where we have a dozen or so students every year who are selected by firms locally to work on a very specific project for a period of time. Uh, and we've got variations of that. But the thing that I'd say that I'd really welcome doing more of, and we've started to do it as a university with the other universities, UCL to a certain extent, London College of Fashion and so on, is actually longer term. Is thinking what are the challenges over the next four or five longer, four or five years and more, that might be, you know, research plans or research investments we might want to make in, say, the creative industries. Or I'll give a very practical example. We've started exploring with our design school up in the East Midlands about how we're going to develop a partnership around design technologies, sorry, design and digital technologies, and play that back into some of our, what I've been describing already about the sort of research that we're starting to develop around the industrial model within the creative industries. So, We've been thinking about what does that mean in terms of research into immersive technologies and how they're affect, affecting um, creative business or AI and the ethical implications of AI. So we've started to develop you know, longer-term research ideas. Now, instinctively, we go off and we talk to other academics about that. And I just think it would be great to think that we could start to think about those long-term challenges with businesses and other community partners too. It's tough. It's tough because actually, you know, people are, as you mentioned, austerity, you know, people have got to look at their bottom line and the idea of having a dialogue around a piece of research or a research application we might put in two years' time for a, a piece of work that a PhD researcher might yeah. be finishing off in 2026, 27, you're going to think, no, do you know what? I've, I've got a bit more important things to do. <laughs> I get that. But I just think that's where the real opportunity is because that's potentially exciting because without, you know, don't quote me on this, as it were, um, although re- I'm talking publicly. But, but you know, we're, I'm talking about potentially million, you know, three, four, five million pound bids that might come in that might or that might see that level of funding coming into Loughborough, London over the course of the next five, six, seven years. Wouldn't it be great to think that that level of investment into, let's say, the application of IE, AI in creative technologies could be something that we develop, those ideas could be developed, the projects could be developed. And going back to your original question, the research research and development and the new products and services and experiences that we build with that technology, it'd be great if we could do that with companies in and around Hackney Wick and Fish Island. It'd be great for the area, it'd be great for those companies. And those are the sorts of things I think it'd be, you know, we could and should be starting to explore much more. Amazing. Well, Graham, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm, you, you know, your wealth of experience and perspective is, it's, yeah, it's really beautiful to to just get a chance to to understand your perspective and 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 see how you see these areas intersecting, which are very complicated, very complex. Um, for anyone who's loved what they've heard, how do they keep in touch with your your thoughts? Where can they find you online? Okay, yeah, no, good. So, um, well, it's it's been fun. Thank you. Um, 
we call ourselves Crack, which is the Creative Research and Innovation Centre at Loughborough. So crack.elborough.ac.uk. Um, we publish uh, essays and other things, but I'm on campus three or four days a week so in London, so come and visit me. Um, that's a big open call, that. Yeah, that's What's okay. What's your office hours? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how all much right. time okay, have you got? Ne- okay, don't come very often. No, no, I'm not there very often. No, no. I'll be the one who's there all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh you know, invite me along to for a beer or for a coffee in uh, one of the very many splendid places, like the Thingy Cafe, where we are now. Many, one of the splendid places in Hackney Wickfish Island or indeed uh, here east. So, no, I'm, you know... Um, I think this is a great part of town, and I think it's got huge potential. And by the way, I always talk about Hackney Wick and Fish Island rather than Stratford. Many of my colleagues come into um, uh, in, into the university via Stratford. I nine times out of ten, I come in via Hackney Wick Station. So I've got that. a great fondness for this area, and I, you know, welcome the chance to hang out with with colleagues and carry on this discussion there. Amazing, thank you, Graham. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>